This is Crossing Bridges, brought to you by OneOp, a coalition to end police brutality. Each show, we bring together one person from the world of activism and one person from the world of advertising and entertainment to discuss the issues of police reform and social justice and how together we can create real change. Today's host is Evan Marshall, COO at Black Men's Wear, a traveling collective that brings black men together, suited and booted, to create culture-shifting viral content. He'll be speaking with Mondale Robertson, the founder of the Black Male Voter Project. Black Male Voter Project is the nation's first and only organization with the sole purpose of increasing black men's participation in electoral politics. Today's topic is Black Men Living Under a Margin. And now, here's Evan Marshall and Mondale Robinson. Uh, so Mondale, welcome here. I'd uh, love for you to you know, add anything you want to say before we dive right into it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited to be here with you, Evan. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure, bro. And uh, thank you all for having me on Crossing Bridges. It means so much uh, that people are not invisibling even more uh, Black men and our, our purpose of participating in electoral politics. Love to see it. Love to see it. Um, especially kind of right now what we have going on with our new Supreme Court justice being elected. Um, I know you've seen the viral videos of Senator Cory Booker um, and the support he gave her in terms of over things. So obviously there is representation. So now more than ever, uh, voting in terms of evolving electoral processes ever needed. What can you say, just diving out of it, what can we do to motivate uh, Black men to vote again? Or how are you doing that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yo, so talking about voting in terms of an election cycle or go to the polls and vote just for this candidate or this party is a, is a failed effort that we see uh, white Democratic uh, consultants and others fail at every election cycle. And part of that is because black men are the most vulnerable population in this country. Um, and without tying voting or the act of voting to something that's going to readily address what's plaguing our lives, it's almost impossible to get brothers to go to the polls. We know this to be true because nearly half of the black men that are registered to vote in this country have not voted in five consecutive federal elections. So talking about what we need to do to uh, get black men to participate in electoral politics is really an age old question about the history of American voting and, and, uh, and the, the, the tactics that this country has forever used since the passage of the 15th Amendment to keep black men out of the booth. Um, some of those tactics are death, um, we know mm-hmm. counting salt, we know the grandfather clause, all of these things was necessary for us to participate or exercise our, our franchise. And it, it's not really changed as it pertains to the hurdles that we got to jump to in order to participate in electoral politics. The difference now is black men are living on the margins and Maslow hierarchy needs tells us a people that don't have their basic needs met can't think about things that are self-actualization. So as long as we present voting in this very transactional way to black men, it will always seem like it's self-actualization. So the work of Black Male Voter Project is to move voting from self-actualization to a cure to what's ailing us so that black men are excited about participating in electoral politics. Uh, what are some of those things that are ailing us, leading us to not have, uh, leading to those 50% of black men not having voted over the last, last five elections? I mean, like I said, when you come to someone's community, uh, two months away from an election, acting like the world is on fire and this is the most important election. It doesn't, it doesn't ring true to people who are making life and death decisions every day. It doesn't seem like uh, 
is you're telling the truth. And also when you're saying your community need this or you should do this, you sound like you're talking at them and you've not heard what issues are most important to them. I will say some of the most important issues to black men right now in this current climate is inflation or the economy altogether. Uh, the lack of our ability to, to, to gain employment. People are bragging about how great the economy is doing right now, how great Wall Street is doing right now. And none of that applies to people who have double digit unemployment still right now. Black men are not doing great in America's economy. So the, so the idea that we're hearing on the news, we're hearing from this president and administration uh, bragging about how great the economy is and we don't feel that in our lived experience. Um, then there's also the, the, you know, the racism that is that is intrinsic in America uh, that, that plagues us in every aspect of our life that make us as black men have the shortest lived experiences in this country. Well, actually, we have the shortest lives out of all black men in the new world. And that's not even excluding some of the underdeveloped or non-developed nations. Um, I think those are some of the most important issues. Black men want trades back in school, including coding. Black men want the end to, uh, you know, police, police brutality that is plaguing us at a rate that is unmatched by any other demographic. And there's, and there's several other issues that are real issues that we deal with on a daily basis that politicians aren't talking about. It is, and I love that you said that politicians are talking about it, because especially when you think about within the black community, that the alderman has always been a pinnacle or a beacon of the black community. So people obviously, you know, your local alderman, he, whether you need to get something passed or you need a permit or things of that nature. So we do have that level of connectivity on a local level, um, even in the necessarily might not necessarily even voted for that person. You know, they know who their local alderman is. What do you think? How do you think? To your point in terms of systemic problems that kind of go down, how does it, you think it goes from the top down trickling all the way down to where you might have, you know, representation to your local order, you might have a relationship with them. But even within that, knowing that and not seeing how those policies are implemented limits you or uh, discourages you from voting for the larger electorate, whether it be the mayor, governor, electoral college, state senate, house representative, or even the president. Yeah, I, I mean, I say this as a person who is running for office right now. I'm running for mayor of my hometown, if in North Carolina. And I, and I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a, 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 you know, a deficiency of the voter that they don't participate in elections. I think it's a failure of all elected officials. And for us folk in the country, uh, when Brother Evans says alderman, he's talking about councilmen or town commissioners. So it's the same thing. Um, so I, I think people people need to understand that uh, what we what I, I should say politicians and political parties and their auxiliaries need to understand that voters are living outside of the political bubble. They're, they're dealing with real life issues. And if we're not addressing them, we're not talking to them year round about how we make those issues or electing an alderman or a councilman or a mayor even uh, can benefit them, then I, I think we are already missing the mark and uh, we're, we're setting ourselves up for failure as it pertains to folk who are elected officials or politicals um, if we are expected to turn out more people than already participate the normal 50 or 55 or 60 percent, depending on which election cycle we're talking about. I think, though, there is a pathway to increasing uh, or expanding the electorate, I should say. And that way is is clear. It's listening to people before you talk to people, understanding what their issues are, finding out where you meet them at those issues and then platform on those issues rather than what your consultants in Washington, D.C. is telling you what to do. Are there specific policies um, obviously, to your mention, whether it's somebody that lives in rural America, somebody that lives in, we'll say, urban, not urban as in black, but urban literally as a metropolis, uh, we need to negate that urban term for being black 
to begin with. Uh, but that being said, whether you're living in rural America or you're living in a metropolis, are there universal policies that you think can, that are um, affecting Black people at large that you think people that uh, the people in those positions are not listening to, they're not being heard? If so, what are they? Or even just on a high level, what are things that can be done to kind of help, you know, uh, feel them be heard and feel represented so that would encourage them to vote? Yeah, I mean, I, and, it's, and it's, it's beyond feelings. I mean, feelings are extremely important. Black men make, emo we are emotional creatures, make emotional decisions, but it's not just based on emotions. We get emotional. A great example is we might be emotional about a red Corvette, but we're not going to make the decision until we've passed enough facts to say that this, this will benefit our lives in some way. And the same thing is true about choosing our politicians or even choosing to participate in electoral politics. I think until politicians have uh, done more than just entice us with a church fan or proverbial fried chicken and show up consistently even when there's no election, then there can be a relationship built. And I think that's what lacks in traditional politics. There are no relationship. Everything is transactional. And doing transactions with people who are living on the margins and you're not addressing the, the issues that are causing them to live on the margins, you're, you're, you're already running a, a, a rat race that, that is definitely not going to yield the results you need. You asked, uh, what are some of the policies? I think the number one policy we need to address in this country uh, is the economic issues. How can we be the richest nation, so-called the richest nation on the planet with so many black people uh, living in poverty because of uh, inherent racism or systematic racism? So to that point, in terms of policies, in terms of how do you, two-part question, uh, how do you get those uh, those people in political power and positions to move within those margins? Uh, to your point, you talked on, one of the things I hear a lot is less on education and more on empathizing. Right. Because you have to empathize with that person's plight. And until you have empathy for that person, then you can be educated. If you just come in and say, tell me about this, but you don't really understand what that person is going through to put yourself in that person's shoes, it's really to understand how they get in that margin. So how would you say, do you actually bridge that gap to connect those people in power to understand one, what that margin is to take a step within that margin so that they can help lift people out of that or help that person's voice be heard? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not in the business to, to make politicians understand the plight of poor America when we know that it is a system that's created by our support of capitalism. So I think, uh, I mean, when we, when we support large industries at the expense of people, then we, we create the spaces where we have exploitation as the norm in this country. So many politicians talk about the middle class, but the middle class is so small compared to uh, the poor, people who are living poor, working poor and, and homeless. So I, I don't I don't have a lot of time to deal with them. What I do know is I try to teach people that politics uh, can be revolutionary in the sense that not electing a person to the first term or for their first term, there's nothing revolutionary about that. What's revolutionary, what's different than the status quo is unelecting that person after their first term when they don't do what they said they were gonna do. And I think once we learn how to unelect people um, for not doing what they're supposed to be doing as it pertains to our communities, then I think, I think politicians will start paying attention a lot more to our communities. Right now, uh, a great example of this is the Democratic Party. Uh, black people make up uh, an overwhelming majority of the people who participate in their primary elections. Yet and still, majority of their resources, over 90% of their resources are spent with white consultants and targeting conservatively white voters. This is a demographic that the white voters are a demographic that Democrats haven't won a majority of since the 40s. I'm sorry, since the 50s. And it's not going to change anytime soon. So I, th I think what, what we need to do is we have to be honest and, and demand more of, of people who are benefiting from our votes. And I think that's that's the lessons 
that we focus on at Black Male Voter Project, coupled with the lessons of understanding that we can't show up transactional like the parties, like the political parties in this country do. And we also have to provide people services that address what's, that what's plaguing them. This is why on our C3 side, our 501C3 side, uh, we also provide services like teaching brothers with felony convictions how to code, uh, learn computer languages. We also have a program called Street Legacy where we train brothers who are coming home from prison um, in end of life and palliative care. And then we couple them with someone who is dying in hospice without a black man who is dying in hospice without family or friends to come visit them. And we pay them brothers to go sit with them until to these brothers transition. And I think that that level of, of service provided, even when there's no election cycle. Uh, we also do community outreach. We help brothers pick out suits, we buy suits for brothers. We also re-grant to organizations that aren't um, IRS designated so that we can show people that we are part of this community, not just for election cycles, because we know there are more things plaguing black people and elections are not an end all be all or fix it all for black people. It's a tool that we should use, absolutely, but it's not the end all be all. How have you seen the services and lessons such as, you know, that you just mentioned and lessons that you're providing to those men that you work with um, encourage them to either either get out and vote? And even if they're not getting the vote, having greater understanding of the policy, the people that they're working with, the constituents that represent them to actually kind of even take the action even on their side to help bridge that gap. Not saying they have to be the ones to lead that charge because it should definitely come from top down, but at the same time, that education can make them more aware. How have you seen that kind of impact them and shift the changes within the men that you're working with? Yeah, I mean, if you consider the work that we did in uh, just Georgia, for instance, in 2020, uh, it's unbelievable what we were able to do. Georgia has about 1.2 million black men that are registered to vote. Of that 1.2 million black men, uh, about 470,000 of them had not voted in four, I'm sorry, five consecutive federal elections. So that means a couple things. One, these are not kids. These are people who are at least 30 years old or older, and they were old enough to vote for Barack Obama, but they did not. They chose not to vote for Barack Obama. They also didn't vote for Stacey Abrams, right? So these people were on the ballot. They registered to vote, but weren't really voting. We, that's, the, that's the demographic that we targeted. And of that 460,000 brothers that had not voted in all of those elections, we were able to turn out 140,000 of them for the primary, not the general election, the primary, which is generally low. And we can't, and the Democratic Party can't say it was because Joe Biden, um, the reason these brothers voted in a, a Democratic primary, because by the time Georgia had his primary in 2020, Biden was already the candidate. There was no one against him on the ballot. And we so we so we saw our work impact uh, in this election cycle or in the past election cycle in a way that no one can that can match that you, normally in political spaces people brag about a three percent or two percent or one percent increase so we're talking about uh, a thirty or forty percent almost thirty percent increase in a demographic that people say won't participate in electoral politics and we did this just by providing services the ones I just listed and also being a part of a culturally competent program that speaks to the issues plaguing folk. You touched base several times on the Biden administration and some of the work that you are. What are some of the things that the Biden administration or just both parties can do in general to earn back the trust of black voters on either side? Yeah, I'm sorry to cut you off, brother. Evan, you, you're a black man living in America just like I am. Uh, and I don't, people, people are not monoliths. Black people are not monoliths. Black men are not monoliths, but we, we vote uh, like a monolith. Every election cycle, you see black people in the 90 percentile voting for Democrats uh, of those who participate. 
Um, so I don't think there's there, there's nothing the Republican Party, the current Republican Party can do right now to increase its stakeholder in black men because they show up like racists. They show up like racists. And then anybody's this arguing that point are, are not paying attention to uh, American politics right now at this moment. Uh, that is just a fact. There, there are no Democrat. There's no Democratic controlled states passing laws to restrict black people's access to the ballot. There are no no democratically controlled state legislatures that are saying we can't talk about critical race theory in this country. There are no democratically controlled uh, spaces that's trying to marginalize transgender and LGBTQI children. That's only happening on the Republican side. So I don't think there's any way that the current Republican Party can increase its um, its strong or its hold on black people or even gain a hold on black men. I do think the Democratic Party shouldn't take that light and think that they have it washed up because there's another way uh, they have another enemy and that enemy is not voting at all. And black people showed them in Virginia in 2021, black men specifically showed them when you're not talking about our issues, when you're talking about issues that excite the white base, you're probably going to lose. You're going to lose us. Um, they, they spent the entire election cycle in 2021 in Virginia talking about uh, critical race theory. That issue is not important to black people. Uh, we, we are talking about bread and butter issues that are keeping our lights on, keeping our kids and our families fed. Uh, economic issues that are really plaguing us. And because we didn't get those, and because the president told us in 2020, if we give him two senators from Georgia, if we give him uh, the White House, then black issues would be a priority. Then he got in the White House and we didn't see that. We saw that we were held captive to a conservative leaning Democrat from West Virginia by the name of Joe Manchin. So Democrats can't think because Republicans have no chance at winning black voters, that they have it locked up because black men will sit out elections when you're not speaking to the issues that you promised them you would. Oh, wow. I can respond to that in so many different ways. Um, and I love that we're having a conversation. This, but what we're, some of the things we're discussing is just what I like to say, we're in the midst of the browning of America. So I think one of the key things to kind of what you alluded to is like you said, the Democratic Party can't take for granted that black men and black people, especially black men, will choose not to vote. You also mentioned about how the Republican Party, whether Republican Party, excuse me, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's some of the uh, modern modern ways they're doing voter suppression, that's kind of taking missing the insight that in 2018 was the first year in the history of America where there were more black and brown faces in kindergarten than there were white children. So because of that, because of that, the population is shifting more and more so now to where there's going to be black and brown faces. Do you think that is an effort from the um, elder white minority now that they're becoming to not want to pass the torch, hand over the reins and necessarily want to speak to that audience? Or do you think it's that they're just, um, for lack of a better term, ignorant to the fact of not really looking at these numbers like, no, to your point, this 30-year-olds are the ones who are not voting. The kids who are five years old, that's the audience you need to be speaking to over the next 10 to 12 years, because when they get the right to vote, that's who's the one that's actually going to be guiding the direction of your party moving forward. Yes, I think, listen, I I, I don't think they, I, I don't think they are not paying attention to these demographic shifts. They know these demographic shifts. I think this is why we're seeing so many restrictive uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, so many restrictive laws passed trying to prevent black and brown voters from going to the poll because the Republicans know the more people that participate in electoral politics, the least likely they are to win. Uh, and, and this is why we have these racist gerrymandering of districts as well, uh, because of the census. The, well, the, the worst census, I would say, probably in American history as it pertains to counting people because of COVID and, the, and the, all the people that did not show. We, we know now from the census report that uh, 
thirties, tens of millions of black people were not counted in this past census, right? Uh, so I, I think here's what, here's what I believe. I believe um, that because the white majority understand they are not going to be the majority by 2050 in this country, they're doing all types of, uh, like I said, uh, restrictive uh, passing of laws to to prevent people from taking power. People like in in, in a not stealing power, taking power in the way that you should through the electoral through the through the vote. I also know that. Political political parties spend billions of dollars on elections. They they understand the demographic shift. I mean, Texas right now is is finally majority not white, right? Texas is a heavy populated con- a state in this country, and it's no longer people don't even understand that white people are no longer the majority. The two generations that w- that are the largest generations that will be the largest generation in the history of this country are the uh, millennials and the generation behind them, disease. These, both of these generations will be larger than baby boomers. And right now, both of them, them coupled with my generation, which is the X, which is a smaller generation, are the majority of voters. So it doesn't even matter what old, old people are doing. We have the oldest Senate in the history of this country. We have old Supreme Court justices that are three or four generations removed from younger voters. It's not going to be long before there's a rebellion uh, and the entire parties, both of them, the leaderships will be gone because these young voters uh, you, you named 2018 as the first year that uh, black and there were more black and brown kids in, in kindergarten than white. It was also the first year that young voters outperform old voters. Millennials in 2018 outperform baby boomers. And that's unheard of when you have a generation that young outperforming another generation as old as the baby boomers. So I'm super excited about the browning of America. Yes. But also these young people who are who are politically active, even in the face of folk telling them that they don't care about what's going on and they're too nonchalant. I think these young folks are very tuned in about what's going on. We saw them turn out, like I said, in 2018 in, in record-breaking numbers and also in 2020. What happened in 2021 is a direct uh, a, a direct result of the Biden administration not keeping its word to these people, these young voters who set the street on fire after George Floyd was murdered. What are some of the policies, you know, obviously speaking of George Floyd, obviously a big topic around that situation was, you know, police reform, uh, which also kind of led to increased minimum wages. And obviously we, the black voters in general wish to see more action from the Biden administration. Um, do, were you surprised that Biden abandoned his police oversight board proposal? Uh, what do you think were the deciding factors in that in him choosing to abandon that? Yeah, man, I, I think uh, I think we, we saw we saw um, we saw. The Democrats, the conservative Democrats, or I should say the moderate Democrats, uh, we saw the moderate Democrats abandon it even before the Biden administration signaled that. Uh, speaking particularly of Clyburn, James Clyburn, Congressman Clyburn out of South Carolina, who in February, even before we started negotiating on the police reform bill, said that they were willing to take off certain parts of the uh, the police reform that, that some of us on the left were asking for, even before the negotiations started. So we already... We already felt the sellout happening. I think what, what what's most disgusting to black people, black people are used to being let down by America and America's system. Joe Biden not seceding at his uh, platform would not have ticked black people off, black voters off, or black men off. I think what's ticking us off is the lack of fight for what he said would be a priority. There's no fight. We've not seen a fight for issues uh, important to black. They couldn't even get John Lewis Act passed. John Lewis... Uh, who was a soldier of of civil rights era and also uh, a long-term congressman from Georgia, the 5th District, we watched them do nothing on his act and then try to rush it through 
uh, in the middle of, or at the beginning of this year, during the middle of an election cycle, which would, which is going to politicize and anything and not make it uh, possible to pass. So I, I am I'm disgusted with the lack of fight from this administration. Uh, we we like I said, black people, black men specifically, are used to what we need not being delivered. What we're not used to is supporting people in record numbers and then them spitting in our face in this manner. I mean, fighting is, uh, I mean, I think everything what you said is spot on. I think, and I would say that probably that lack of fight is probably one of the reasons just from the outside looking in uh, why you guys have the black male voters record. And that's why they don't feel that their voice is heard. That's why they feel not motivated to one vote. Because to your point, you, even the people that are voting might understand, okay, I understand I don't necessarily have control over the policy being implemented. I can vote for this person. I can pass this policy and I, you know, he can speak for me. But if, you know, whoever the House majority on either side at that time chooses to fight against it, we also just want to know, so like, are you going to fight for us as well and, and pound on the table for us? I think that's a very interesting way to be able to do it. Is there a person um, rising uh, that you see on either party, people that black people would be willing to fight for. Obviously, you're somebody that's running for office as well. How are you getting people? How are you displaying within your area that what you're running for mayor to courage that you will fight for those people of all race and creeds and background? Yeah, I'm, I'm literally just pointing out to people why we are in, in my hometown. Forbes magazine said my hometown is the seventh poorest city in America. There's only six cities with a population of a thousand or more. Uh, that is poorer than where, where I'm from. People live off $20,500 a year. That is that is insane, unheard of, and impossible almost. Uh, so, I mean, what, what's plaguing the people at home is extremely high electric bills because we have a co-op. Uh, we actually, the city, the town actually buys the electricity from uh, the county and then resell it to the people. And it's this number one source of income. That's problematic, especially when you have a ton of slum lords that runs infield. So it's a small town, but the people that own the houses aren't taking care of the houses, which which is driving up the electric bill because they're not fixing, they're not, they don't have energy efficiency uh, windows and doors. And then there are, there are other things that we need to do to address what's plaguing people in infield. You ask what they are, the housing, the housing crisis is number one, I think. Uh, people need to have houses that are not killing them. I mean, our houses, we have horrible water quality. Um, sometimes uh, the water comes out of the faucet as orange. And I think people don't even understand. This is part of the reason we don't have restaurants. Restaurants like McDonald's wouldn't even come to my hometown because they were afraid of the quality of water. Um, Infill is also settled in one of the largest cancer clusters in, in the country because the hog farmers up in Smithfield uh, are dropping dead caucuses in the water supply and that water is coming down and people are being forced to use that water for not just drinking, but also bathing. And it's causing all types of problems for kids uh, in the community as well, skin disorders like ringworms and other things. So I think, I think I'm fighting to address these issues and be an advocate for people that I know and love uh, at home uh, to, to, to show them that we don't have to have this quality of life. We can push back on all of this if we have a town, count, a town commission that is supportive of the people and also a mayor who's willing to advocate beyond uh, the county of Halifax for for the folk in infield. And, and you mentioned some of the I mean, systemic problems in terms of business. Is there what, what would you say is the corporate responsibility on all levels to maybe not only to help impact policy in terms of you know, driving uh, jobs and economic sustainability to, within some of these communities? I know you mentioned several times in terms of um, 
the level of unemployment rates for Black men? What is the corporate responsibility to kind of to be able to shift that, especially in lieu of all the uh, faux responsibility people put out forth after the whole uh, Black Lives Matter movement and Stop Asian Hate movement? She's all like, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do this percent pledge. We're going to do that. But like I said, that's why I said it's faux responsibility, because that you have not seen even now coming on two to three years, that trickle down effect within these communities. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's a corporate responsibility as it pertains to black communities or any communities because I don't trust corporations. That's the only reason why, right? Corporations will say one thing, just like you just explained, and do exact opposite. A great example of this is Walt Disney is having a fight of their life with the the Santas. They, but what people don't know is Walt Disney is one of the largest contributors to the Republican Party in Florida, and they're not stopping their contributions. They're not reimagining what they should be doing with those funds. So while they're arguing, while they're doing this theater thing on on on, on, on the news or through, through political press releases, that's not what their money is saying. Their money is still supporting these same candidates. And I think this is the same case for all these corporations. So I think the government has a role that it needs to make corporate responsible citizens. If the Republicans believe that corporations are citizens, then they need to be responsible and held, held accountable for their actions. If I, as a citizen or resident of any town or city, was doing half of the things that these corporations are doing, exploiting my neighbors, uh, dumping dead animal carcasses in their yard, then I would be locked up immediately as a black man. So I think these corporations should need to be proverbially locked up. And by that, I mean, these resources need to be taken from them and dumped back in these communities to correct the atrocities that they're committing uh, on these peoples. Now, do you think that's being done through like actual uh, legal representation in terms of actually arresting? Do you think more as taxes, fine? Because obviously to your point, you can just you can tax and fine them all day and they'll just hold it up in litigation to delay the fine, right? So what do you think actually can be taken to hold these corporations responsible that will actually do more than just affect their bottom line? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things we could do. Uh, we can stop corporations from lobbying our elected officials. Um, we can we can actually take money out of politics. It's so much money in politics, like I said, people are spending billions of dollars every, on, on election cycles and uh, the average person can't even fathom what a billion dollars is and what how much influence it is. So when you think about that much influence uh, over politicians, then you already see how it's weighed in their favor. Taking money out of politics must happen. Um, and I think I, I think we don't need we don't need lawsuits. We need laws on the book codified so that we can address what's happened with these large corporations that are exploiting people, uh, and, and and not just exploiting people. They're exploiting next generations because what they're doing is they're causing harm to our environment, and that too. Is going to do so much damage that we can't that we can't fix, uh, especially not at the pace that we're moving right now. Oh wow, um, that's great! And in terms of what are the things you mentioned in terms of some of these uh, government contracts, going back to the economic situation, we have people situation like you know in Stockton, California, for a while we had uh, Michael Tubbs, who was the mayor of Stockton, California, for a while, and some of the programs he was passing with UBI. How, what are your thoughts on universal basic income? Do you feel that that can be a government regulated policy. I don't I don't know if you I'm sure you saw uh, the state of New Mexico came out this week and announced that they were the first state that's pr providing free public education for all of their residents, whether you're uh, legal or illegal, which is fantastic, obviously, with New Mexico bordering Mexico there as well and affecting the brown. How do you think government policies can kind of impact them, whether it's UBI, whether it's educate free education? What do you think is something like do you think those are opportunities? Um, and if so, how do we kind of shed light on that to kind of guide them in that direction? Yeah, just just upon a, upon a uh, just like real quick, language is so important to me, and and, and words words do so much uh, harm or hurt, right? So let's just let's let's uh, uh, 
for me, I have a lot of uh, people and I do a lot of work in the political space. So folk, folk sometimes say I'm extra, <laughs> or, but, I, but I think, Evan, it's important that we, we take this moment to say that nobody is illegal, right? People can't be illegal. Especially, Sorry about that. Correct. No, no, it's, it's, it's all good. It's, Appreciate it's, that. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's all good. Especially when this, especially when this country stole New Mexico correct. from old Mexico. You know what I'm 100%. saying? You know what I'm saying? 100%. So, no, we are we are in alignment on that. Yeah, yeah, correct. for sure. Yes, for sure. But um, I also want to say that. Yep. Yeah, listen, Mike. I like. I smile when you said Michael Tubbs. I'm glad you said that. Michael Tubbs is the G. Uh, I I actually used to do consultant work, and I helped. I helped Michael Tubbs uh, election cycle through Democracy for America, which is one of the largest super PACs in this country uh, that help progressive candidates. I think UBI is, listen, we can pretend that we can pretend all we want to, brother. But you and I both know in the most of the world that has ever sat down and thought about anything as it pertains to technology has already think thought about something on a, on a, on a, on a certain similar level, a similar, I'm sorry, a similar level to UBI. Let me explain what I'm saying. We have more people than we ever had in the history of the of mankind. There are more people living right now than had ever lived, right? We need the least amount of workers now than we ever had. Guess what? We're never going to need more workers than we need today. We're never going to need more workers tomorrow than we have tomorrow. Because of technology, we need less workers. So we already are, we are obligated to think morally, what does that mean? If we have more people than we've ever had and we need less workers than we ever had, we have to rethink how people live unless we're saying we're okay with a certain segment of population dying because of poverty. Because we don't need as many workers as we used to. So I think uh, UBI is, is absolutely a must. It's necessary uh, and it should be it should be status quo. There shouldn't be homeless veterans sleeping outside uh, Washington DC, the White House, because they can't have somewhere to lay their head because they don't have a job. I think, I think honestly, for me, I think people should work about five years and then they should be taken care of by the government for the rest of their lives because we don't have enough work for as many workers as we have. And people shouldn't be poor because they don't have a job. People shouldn't have health care because they don't have a job. People shouldn't have a healthy house because they don't have a job because we have the resources to do so. If we spent a lot less on our military, we could spend so much more on our people. I love that you said that because that's actually a great segue to one of the topics I want to discuss because you're a big proponent of saying homelessness is not a police issue, right? So I want you to kind of love to expand on that in lieu of what you just uh, said in terms of focusing on our people. Yeah, I mean, bro, we if, if we go back to America and think about when people were poor, the Great Depression happened and this country, this country went on its way to make sure that people had food and, and poor, being poor was not looked down upon. This country created ways to take the safety safety net, I'm sorry, the social safety nets were created as a result of the Great Depression. Uh, when more people when more people got included in, in poverty, when, when the country had to provide services equal for black people and white people is when poverty became a, 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 a situation that we looked at as, as, as or we looked down upon. I think, I think uh, looking at homelessness as an issue of of, 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 of the people who are suffering from, from homelessness is, is a flawed a flawed vision. It's a, it's, a, it's a bad way to look at it because we know uh, most people that are on the, on, on, on the streets are, they have mental health issues. We lack those services. We, we relegate people with mental health issues. 
issues to the police the police system, which is not where they belong. That is not how you address someone's mental health issues. We also know that people that are on the street are veterans. A large portion of our veterans are homeless, uh, which which also goes back to mental health issues, because if you're a war veteran, you probably are suffering from PTSD or some other traumatic experience that that's making it hard for you to cope with daily life. We also know that people coming home from uh, the incarceration system are also a large are overrepresented in the homeless population. So when you think about all of these issues. These are systems that we we fail at epically compared to the rest of the developed world. Uh, we overprison people. We have less. We have less than a third of China's population, but we have a larger prison population than China. How is that so? Right? How is that so? We overprison people. We 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 also don't treat people. Uh, we stigmatize mental health in a way that's not helpful for folk. So I think we have all of these systems that create the homeless population and they all can be addressed by us providing necessary resources for folk that are suffering either from uh, coming home from uh, the prison system or people suffering from mental health or people coming home from war. Broken. No, I love to hear them. I think to your point, especially on the prison form, prison situation in terms of obviously people meet you can 100% have PTSD based on the things that you deal with the situation in prison. A lot of people don't even think about that aspect of it. There's a lot of things that go on that you might not have access to that in terms of can be affect you both mentally and emotionally. Uh, some of the things, obviously the whole thing, you know, for uh, police in prison really should be rehabilitation. But as you know better than most, it's not set up for you to be able to go into the rehab, to, to, to be rehabilitated, whether it's developing it as technical skill, developing a trade, uh, developing coding classes for people to be able to do that now. They kind of go in their place and then they, because of capitalism, it's just empty sale. So it's, the system is set up for you to be able to come out and then go back in because the more sales they have empty, the less money they're making. So uh, to your point, there's a lot of different ways. And the same thing can be said, if you think about that, there's also why you have like homeless shelters are also overpopulated, overcrowded, right? You have all these homeless people in the street, but at the same time, there's not enough beds for them to go. Uh, there's not enough. There's not enough hygiene, healthcare, whether it's deodorant, soap, showers, hot water for them to be able to utilize to stay clean to prevent diseases and uh, infections and things of that nature. So, uh, to your point, it's like I guess with us within the community, how do we raise these policies? How do we gather together? How? What are you, some of the work that you're doing with the Black Male Voter Project? To outside of I know you said you do a lot of work with the veterans. You do a lot of work with. Uh, people that are transitioning in and out of prison as well. But what can we do on a larger scale, whether it's individuals in our community, individuals within um, our families, within our networks that we have to raise the awareness and actually lead to action versus just discussing and having conversations? Yeah, I think I think we all have a role to play in our democracy. Voting is a small part of being uh, civically uh, clean, right? Doing what you're supposed to do as, as, a, as, a, as a citizen in, in this space. Uh, I think I think uh, it's we also have to deal with the realization that people are living on the margins and people don't have a lot of free time or resources where they can you know donate or or donate their time or resources to political parties or, or the process. So I would tell people that the, the easiest thing you could do uh, is find out what's going on around you in your community, uh, find out what your neighbors are suffering from, and, and see and find out if the people that are lo locally elected are addressing those issues. And if they're not. Then I mean, like you've already you've already sparked interest by asking people what's the most important issue to them, just in your neighborhood, five or six doors down on both sides, and you've had more people probably attend a small town meeting than normally does anyway. And doing that uh, bring eyes to these politicians, um, which means you get to shine a light and take that information back 
even if you just write a post on Facebook and say, guess what I found out at the town meeting this evening? And you sharing that information will spread. Uh, and, in, and and you can start a conversation that way. And I think that's, I think uh, talking about politics in a way where we demystify it, where it becomes what's really plaguing you. If that's the only political thing people can answer, that's a leap uh, by, 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 by bounds compared to where we are. Because once people ask what's really plaguing me, then they're gonna ask, Whose job is it to fix this? And once people feel, realize that whose job it is to fix it is not working on it, then they, they're going to be excited to get rid of that person anyway. And I think that's enough political excitement to bring bring people into the fold. As it pertains to Black Male Voter Project, we do year-round uh, civic engagement work with brothers. We have multiple programs. We have Climate in Brothers, um, where we are talking about, we're figuring out how we turn Black men into climate voters because we do live in communities where our environment is literally killing us more than most people. Black and brown communities are where they dump, dumping toxic waste. Uh, we, Like I was talking about the, the hog farmers, other things, paper plants, they're over, they're taking down trees in our communities at rates that are un, that are alarming, not unalarming, it's very alarming. And then we have other issues that are environmental issues. They put us next to highways. So our kids and us have, and we have asthma at rates that are mm-hmm. unrealistic. All of these are environmental problems. So we're trying to figure out how to turn black men into environmental voters. Um, secondly, we have the John Lewis Project where we're, where we're always constantly engaging brothers around political issues uh, at the local level, making sure they understand what's happening in their communities and how it affects them. We, we, uh, a great example of this is people usually think if they got a racist uh, police department, then they have a police chief problem. That's not your police chief problem. Because if you have a racist police department, your mayor should hire or fire mm. a new police that can fire, that can that can clean up uh, that police department. So you need to unelect your mayor. A lot of people don't tie that election to the police department, but they absolutely should. This is why I always say there are three types of judicial elections or four, really, if you consider the DA, judges, sheriff, and then your mayor, because your mayor hired uh, police chiefs. And that, that sets the tone of what is and isn't acceptable as it pertains to how you treat people or over-police people. Um, we, we do work around, um, we, like I told you about the streets, the street legacy and also um, the uh, coding school, which we're building. And then we also have um, we have other we have other things that we do. We have focus groups that are called Brothers Be Voting, where they're not political conversations uh, in traditional sense. We try to invite old, uh, people who are non-voters or people who don't vote regularly to come into these spaces and talk about what's going on in their lives and what could turn them into voters, what issues could make them uh, area election voters, what the world calls super voters. And then we do stuff like uh, we have our nightclub ambassador program, which takes us into a partnership with club owners, uh, DJs, party promoters, and to engage black men in a space that they are most comfortable uh, where they're relaxing. And and, and people think that's just an escape from reality nightclubs, but what people don't understand is the juke joint is an extremely important part of black history. It's where black people went to plan uh, uh, rallies, civic engagement work, and also let out frustration. A lot of the old blues songs, people think black men are being uh, mochismo or, or sex is when in actuality, if you do the history of those songs, this is black men expressing their frustration with the system. And you oftentimes it was used uh, the lyrics were used to talk about a woman because it kept you from getting killed. Because if they were, if Muddy Waters or some of these early blues singers were singing truly about what they were talking about, like getting over on a man or how they want to choke him, then that would be a death sentence uh, in those times, talking about the white uh, system of America, caste system of America. 
No, I love... I love to hear everything you said. I love the variety of different ways that you guys are looking to make an impact within your communities. I think one thing that you that's phenomenal what you guys are doing is you're just creating safe spaces in general, whether it is the nightclub, whether it's um, you mentioned uh, with the, the John Lewis, whether it's with creating the school for the technical trades. There just needs to be a more safe spaces where black people that look like you could communicate and discuss a variety in a myriad of topics. One of the things I like to say is beyond the barbershop, right? Too oftentimes it's like that concept of like, oh, the only safe space for black, I'm like that's not the case. That might've been the case 15, 20, 30 years ago, but that is no longer the case even as of right now. Uh, but so it's creating spaces like that, which you all are doing. Uh, so I commend you for that. Um, I know we're coming up on time here, uh, but kind of want to just kind of discuss a couple more different things here. Um, some of the things we kind of discussed here in terms of when voter suppression turns to voter frustration, do you think being in situations like the nightclubs, partnering with club owners, do you think um, you guys are that's reaching to the guys that are ex expressing their voter frustration? Do you feel that like um, those spaces where it's more of a, to your point, demystifying politics? I love that word about it to where you're making more of a commonality topic um, can help remove some of the frustration that, the suppression laws are kind of leading in towards? Yeah, man, I, listen, I think, I think uh, honestly, voter suppression, the way we talk about it, uh, is a white conversation. Let, let me explain mm. more. Uh, black people, voter suppression has always been a part of voting for black people, back to the passage of the 15th Amendment, right? There's right. never a time when we were able to vote without someone trying to prevent us from going to the poll, killing our families, or trying to hang us, or like I said, counting grains of sugar or whatever, or passing some kind of ridiculous test in order to exercise our franchise. That's not new to us. And if you look at, we've been in court with Republicans um, since 2011, people on the left who care about uh, expanding the electorate. We've been in the court since 2011. Every, every election cycle, Republicans do something that's more restrictive. What we also saw though is uh, consistently increase in the number of black people participating in elections. So what we're saying is you can't suppress our vote in that manner. The type mm -hmm. of voter suppression, the conversation about voter suppression, we should have that's really suppressing the vote is politicians not keeping their word to black voters. That's right. a form of voter suppression that should be at the top of the list. The second thing is uh, the transactional nature in which politicians show up. They come in two months and not in the communities year round. That's another problem. And then I, I think the last and most important form of voter suppression that we don't talk about is poverty. People that are living on the margins can't think about going to an election cycle or uh, going to a polling place on Tuesday when all they can think about is going to their next job or ensuring that they, they've made enough at this minimum wage job over the last week to pay the bills next week. So a couple of different things right there. So to your point about Tuesday, what do you think could be done to shift some of the, uh, you know, archaic policies that we have like to your point every like the people know the reason you know we voted on tuesday is because obviously you couldn't travel on sunday because that was the sabbath and then if our horse and carriage you need you need a saturday and monday to get to the polls to tuesday to your point that's no longer really the case right like why not do it on a saturday it's like it's option one right so wh what do you think that leads to that and part two to that going to your point about having uh these people in power and not holding their word and not maintaining the do you think that comes down to that two-party system that we have to where it's like, to your point, there's nobody within that community that can be, that can speak for you. And it's unfortunately within American politics, how it's set up because it is such a capitalistic and 
you use the Disney example, it's being financed so much by corporations in terms of empowering who can actually run for these elections that it limits somebody, people that are actually in the community, being a voice and rising up and gathering steam to be able to, to you know, knock off um, that leader that's been in that community for for a long time. I mean, it's unbelievable. I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't think inherently in our two party system is failure built, right? I think what happens right. is, I think what happens is we forgot that our democracy is representative. You can't mm. be spending a billion dollars on an election talking about you representing the common American. Ain't nothing coming <laughs> right. about a billion dollars. Ain't nothing coming about a billion dollars, right? Not just in America, in the world. So I think we got to figure out a way to take money out of politics. Cities and towns like Chapel Hill, North Carolina, have public funded elections. Uh, we can take those models. Those models allow for more people to have access to these offices. I also am a fan of term limits at certain spaces. I don't think the Supreme Court should be a lifetime appointment. I think it should be term limited. I don't think these senators should be three and four generations removed mm -hmm. from the majority of the population. Like I said, we have the oldest Senate than we've ever had. This is not saying that people should have an, there should be an age limit on elected officials. I think though, we should really consider what's going on when majority of Americans can't even relate to uh, what's going on. And, and your, all your criticism is about what America is now because it's not what America was when you were growing up or when you were living. And I think that's a problem that we have. There's a, there's a disconnect between reality and what's going on in Washington, D.C. with our elected officials. I am not a fool. I know that there's only 550 so elected officials in Washington, D.C., and America has over 50,000 elected officials. But I am saying those that get ultimately rich off of politics are usually the ones in Washington, D.C., not the ones on your town commission or your local mate. Those aren't people becoming rich for being politicians. So we should we should look at what's going on with the, the maximum amount of influence that money has in politics. And then I would say the, our our club program works because it doesn't like I said, it doesn't feel like politics. It feels like a part of these brothers lives. And until we make all politics feel like a part of people's lives, we're always going to find uh, I go back to this all the time. We're always going to have shortcomings in how our political system or who participate. You are right in saying that we are no longer an agrarian society and we shouldn't be voting on Tuesdays. And if we do, it should be a national holiday and nobody should be working. We see some, we right. see this happens in, in some of the islands and we also see participation in their elections at like 90 percent or something. Where we're where we're where we're celebrating when it's 67 or 70 percent of participation. So I think you're absolutely right. It is no longer smart to have election day on a Tuesday. It should be uh, a national holiday where people can go vote. And I think we should expand how long early voting is. We see the states. Unfortunately, the whitest states in this country have the most access to the ballot box. Right. If you go to Vermont, which is the whitest state in this country, you can never lose your right to vote. If you are in prison in Vermont, you can vote while you're in prison. Now, if you go to the blackest state in this country, Mississippi, it's one of the hardest states to have the right to vote if you are a black person. If you're in prison, you're definitely not voting. If you're on probation, yep. you're definitely not voting. If you're on parole, you're definitely not voting. So, I, I mean, we see the, the stark differences in how people have access to the vote and where it takes place. And I think it's a job. It's the job of the federal government to, dis, to decide what our elections should look like. And we need some normalcy in what they look like. And then we can't have equity in Mississippi if brothers in prison can't vote like the white boys in Vermont can vote. Yeah, I always say you can't have success without access. That's one of the things I always say on a regular basis. And I think a couple of things here wanted to touch base. I loved what you said in terms of uh, limiting voter terms in terms of talking about congressmen and senators. 
Uh, especially I think about, you know, I'm in Chicago. You think about, you know, Congressman Bobby Rush, love Bobby Rush, you know, one of the founding members of the Chicago Black Panthers alongside Fred Hampton, right? But at the same time, the only person ever beat Barack and Obama in an election is Bobby Rush, right? But at the same time, he's still in power and he's 75 years old. The first district that he represents, that is no, he's no longer the face of that demographic, of that demographic in the community that he represents. Yes, he's 75. Yes, he has, he's one of the most powerful people in the history of Chicago politics in general, both in terms of what he did as a Black Panther, not negating that or mitigating any of that, what he said. That being said, he's also a 75-year-old man. To say that he has representative or is the voice of somebody myself who's 34 years old, that's not the case. There's no way because he can't have a pulse of what re- what re- resonates with me, because he's not me. So to your point, so the fact that he's been in office now since 1993, so you're coming up on 30 years, that should not be the case. It should not be the be there to say that he's going to be able to run for it. But going back to even people that are voting, kind of goes back to some of the situation voters have. When you go into the polls, who you going to vote for, you know that name, right? I'm not even saying that he's been bad in policies that he should not have had. But it's just there's no way that he could be a general voice for the people moving forward when he's not of that age demographic or even within a closer demographic to, you know, 45 Gen X within this multiple generations between them. So, yeah, I think, I mean, that's, that's a spot on assessment. I think what happens is um, we, we love we love Bobby Rush history. I, I also right. I also I detest the, the the unwillingness of the black elected officials willingness to step down and step away. Um, mm-hmm. People people forget that. And I mean, we like to romanticize history. Uh, in our community, it's never been about a past of the baton. It's always been the youth, folk 34 or so years old, taking taking the baton from folk who would refuse to step out of their way. Uh, Dr. King died at 22% approval rating, and that's not in the general public. That's with the black community, right? People were frustrated with him willing to speak out against Vietnam, talk about poverty issues and other stuff. So I think we, we, we while we romanticize history, it is the job of the youth to remember that their fire is what makes them important. And also when you're as large as baby, uh, larger than baby boomers, and also it's two two generations back to back that size, then this, this is your country. Uh, and, and your voice carries more weight. It's just about exercising that voice. I love to hear that. Uh, one of the things we'll wrap up with this, I love to say that, uh, you know, from, you know, Juneteenth, 1865, moving forward to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which you touch base on a regular basis, looking forward to where we are today now, it is a call to action for Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z to what are you going to be doing to impact the next generation in 2065? And that's one of the things I encourage everybody to do, to think of it in that aspect, right? To your point, 1865 was not, that was one generation, the next generation carried over when you factor in uh, you had the Great Depression going into the Harlem Renaissance. Then that generation, that Harlem Renaissance led into the Civil Rights Act, which got us to 1965. Then you had 1965. That generation led us into the, unfortunately, with the impact that they made, you had Reaganomics and the crack era within the 80s that kind of suppressed us. But then now it is upon our generation now within the Gen X, Millennial and Gen Z to, to your point, take that baton. Don't wait for it to be passed down. Take that baton to move forward into the next 40 years going into 2065 that we're no longer, let's say no longer, but some of the issues have to continue to shift in our favor um, in a way that can be impact- impacted. So I uh, want to say thank you for this. Once again, uh, everybody here to kind of thank you, everybody, for kind of listening in once again. Uh, you know, thank you, Mondale, for joining us today. Everybody check out the Black Mill Voter Project. Mondale, before we wrap up, is there anything you want to see in terms of Websites, social handles, anything that you all have coming out with, any programs that you're looking to register people for that you'd like to discuss or speak about? 
Yeah, I think I think you said it. Just check out Black Male Voter Project. We're everywhere as Black Male Voter Project. Also, um, tell somebody white about Black Male Voter Project. Uh, and the, the support comes from, unfortunately, in this country, most, most of the political support is wealthy white people. If, mm. if the black people you are supporting comes to you from other white people, you should vet them from black people that don't have many white friends. Because I'm telling you what's happening is we have so many people that think representation is enough. It's not. It has to be more than representation. You have to be representative, representative of communities and also of communities. There are so many black people in the political system, in the Democratic Party's uh, ranks that are disconnected from black people. And I think that is doing a large disservice. This is why we see the party over and over spending 90% of their resources with white consultants, while a majority of their base are something other than white. So it's, it's the duty of the people that see this video to ensure that Black Male Voter Project and other organizations like ours have a long history in this country and ex and continue to affect change. You know what you could say, Mondale? You could actually say that those people live within the margins, right? So they just live in different margins than the one people that we've been discussing. Uh, so once again, I've been speaking with Mondale Robinson, uh, the founder of the Black Male Voter Project. As we prepare for the upcoming midterms, make sure to check out their work and follow them on Instagram at Black Male Voter Project. I'm Evan Marshall, VP of Partnerships at Black Menswear. Uh, we thank you for listening in. We thank you for joining us. And as I said, you can't have success without access. You've been listening to Crossing Bridges, presented by One Up. Today's topic was Black Men Living Under a Margin, hosted by Evan Marshall, the COO at Black Menswear.